Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. And today is Sunday, September 6th, if you can believe that. And we are starting our third annual, actually, now it's a, a full on tradition. We're starting our third annual climate change series. And we were actually hoping to do outdoor service this week. Uh, and this Sunday, it's going to be a high of 117. And it was going to be 101 by the time 10 a.m. rolled around. So that's just obviously not not feasible for, for any of us to be out in that kind of heat. Um, and so we're, we're pushing that back, and we'll kind of monitor the weather and see what it's going to be like this coming week. But this is our uh, third annual series this year entitled On Fire, A Christian Awakening to the Climate Crisis. And to start us out on a really hopeful note, I want, to, I want us to go to the, the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, and I'm reading in the message this morning. The words of the quester, David's son and king of Jerusalem, smoke, nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything, it's all smoke. What's there to show for a lifetime of work? A lifetime of working your fingers to the bone. One generation goes away, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. The sun comes up and the sun goes down, and then it does it again. And again, the same old round. The wind blows south, the wind blows north. Around and around it blows, blowing this way and then that. The whirling, erratic wind. All the rivers flow into the sea, but the sea never fills up. The rivers keep flowing to the same old place and then start over and do it again. Everything is utterly boring. Boring. No one can find any meaning in it. Boring to the eye, boring to the ear. What was will always be, and what happened will happen again. There's nothing new on this earth. Year after year, it's the same old thing. Does someone call out, hey, this is new. Don't get excited. It's the same old story. Nobody remembers what happened yesterday, and the things that will happen tomorrow Nobody will remember them either. Don't count on being remembered. The word of the Lord. Okay, so cheery note to start our series off. Um, that was out of the message, and I was beginning on trying to think of what, what do you talk about on the third year of talking about climate change? Uh, things are relatively the same as far as uh, climate change and global warming although things are obviously get worse year in and year out. And so the verse uh, from Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, came to mind. And I thought, well, that would actually be kind of an interesting place for us to start our journey this month. Uh, in the first year of this series, we, we kind of laid a foundation for a theological understanding of our relationship to the planet, our bodies, and our own lives as created beings and, and, and an evolving ecosystem that led to the rise of human life and, and brought us here today. And, and then last year, our focus was uh, how do we find hope and develop a practice of active hope with a relentless pursuit 
of the change to our own practices and our community practices and a world to do that in a way that rises to the level of the emergency that we face. That was kind of what um, we talked about last year. And so it was kind of difficult for me to to think about approaching this climate series for a third time, um, just because <laughs> you're like, okay, well, what else do what else do we say, and, and how else can we communicate um, this Im- around this important issue? What what is is left to be said? So, so I I choose I chose the title on fire because, in many ways, that's the reality of our predicament as a civilization, and I think it. It gives a sense, at least to me, that um, we are beyond emotional pleas at this point. Uh, there have been emotional pleas to change the trajectory of global warming and climate devastation since long before I was born. And to be perfectly honest, those emotional pleas have gotten us nowhere. Uh, since the governmental, intergovernmental meetings, international meetings in 1980, began in 1988, uh, global CO2 emissions have risen by over 40%. So once 1988 rolled around and, and governments really figured out that uh, there was a definite problem with man-made climate change, um, CO2 has gone up a ton in that, in that time frame. I mean, our planet has warmed. I mean, most of you guys know this. Our planet has warmed one degree Celsius since we began burning coal at an industrial scale. And the average temperatures on track are on track to rise by as much as four times that amount before our current century is up. Um, and, you know, I think I've said this before, but, you know, the last time there was that much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, humans didn't exist. Um, so all of this to say is I, I want to communicate something this week that uh, honestly kind of bears the um, reality that we're facing and I'm, I'm not trying to go for, for shock value, and I'm not trying to convince you of anything using scare tactics, but I do want to just point out uh, the, the present reality for, in order for us to find a way forward. And so that, that'll be next week, um, next week's message. But this morning, I really just kind of want to bring to light um, some of the, the issues and, and the feelings that are, are valid in the midst of such a trying time and a trying crisis. And one of the things that is always difficult when talking about climate change is to communicate it in a a way that makes it seem like it's important now because it happens so slowly. Uh, Jonathan Franzen, a writer, talks about this, that it's hard to grapple with because the planet is still intact. It looks still basically looks normal. There's seasons changing. Uh, we have another election year coming. There are new comedies and shows on Netflix. And it's really difficult to wrap our minds around our planet's impending collapse. Because we look outside, the sky is blue. Uh, you know, it is 117 degrees out. But other than that, it, things are relatively uh, the same. When in, in reality, they're, they're actually not. So I don't really blame the average person for simply not noticing this, for just trying to take care of themselves, support their families, put food on the table, do the best they can, recycle. And, but, but, this, but that reality and, and, and that sort of 
uh, level of denialism or apathy that I think most of us have, it doesn't change the facts uh, or even our optimism as Americans. Yeah, we'll get better. We can, we can tackle it when, when it really comes. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that um, it, it, that type of uh, inaction or inability to, to kind of cope with the, the level, the scope of the crisis, it doesn't change the crisis. So uh, that's kind of what I want to, to drill at. You know, James Baldwin even says, you know, people can, uh, cannot bear very much reality. Um, they prefer fantasy to a truthful recreation of their experience. People have quite enough reality to bear by simply getting through their lives, raising children, dealing with the eternal conundrums of birth, taxes, and death. And so I, I want to recognize that, and I don't want you to hear any of this conversation as uh, a message of, well, we just need to do more, or we just need to scream more, or we just need to... Uh, I really want to just lay out uh, some of the things that I've been thinking about, and then we'll talk on Sunday and see how much of that is is useful or helpful. Uh, so, you know, it's incredibly difficult to talk about the climate crisis, even more so than what Baldwin points out, uh, because we're in the midst of a pandemic, a racial reckoning, political ter- turmoil in an election year with, you know, a president who's trying to uh, cheat to win the election. So, there are so many things, uh, you know, e- economic um, insecurity right now. Uh, there are so many things to worry about that are day-by-day, week-by-week concerns. And the climate is really difficult because that is a century-long concern. Yeah, we have a limited amount of time before we, can, we would ever be able to sort of turn back the clock on the damage that's done, but it's not a pressing in the moment concern for most people. So I want to, I want to recognize that and, and really just kind of, uh, breathe, um, some life into it's, it's okay to, to not be thinking about this or not to be concerned, uh, by this COVID is COVID-19 is, it's ravaged our country unlike anything else. And similarly, in some ways, you know, due to anti-science position by people in positions of power and and all that kind of thing. So, um, but you may not have realized that even during this time, because we've had so many other things to worry about, this has really been a bad year for severe weather events and, and climate news. There was a study that came out last month by the Climate Impact Lab that claims by the end of the century, unmitigated warming produced by worst case uh, scenario emissions would make climate change more deadly than all infectious disease in the world combined. Bill Gates, you know, pandemic. Uh, Bill Gates, he summarized the research by saying, by 2060, climate change could be as deadly as COVID-19. And by 2100, it could be five times as deadly. So we're talking thousands upon thousands of people worldwide dying just because of the effects of climate change every day. Uh, That is really difficult to wrap our minds around. It's difficult for me to wrap my mind around. Um, And unlike the the pandemic, uh, it it would not slow down or even be stalled, except unless we completely zeroed out of every ounce of carbon that's being produced now, which we produce as a, uh, as a global civilization, like 37 gigatons annually. And then the research says 
we might have to wait decades or even centuries after zeroing out of the carbon being produced to wait for the climate to stabilize. It might take decades or years if we zeroed out and we are not even close, we're not even close to being on a trajectory globally to zero out of carbon emissions. So, uh, you know, Greta Thunberg says, uh, I want you to panic. <laughs> Our house is on fire. Our house is on fire. So, uh, yeah, I, I kind of want you to panic. I don't want you to really panic. Uh, but there should be there should be a level of within all of us uh, we as, as as a global community we have to do something <clears throat> we have to do something drastic re really really drastic in order to to turn the ship around. So one of the things we have to find over the course of this month, I think we have to find a a resiliency. Or, or a hope um, within ourselves, uh, like uh, like a I'm kind of, I'm kind of thinking of it like a theological defiance, um, but it's not my goal to make you feel good or to tell you that everything is going to work out in the end. Um, not only is our house on fire, we have to be willing to set fires to the systems that perpetuate the status quo and allow people. And, and people in power to continue to live in nihilism or denial. We have to be the wildfire. There was a, uh, a climate strike, and, and they said on, on uh, an interview, Greta Thunberg may have been the spark, but we are the wildfire. We have to be, we have to be the wildfire of change. So whenever we think about this series on fire, we can give it in those two ways. Yes, our house is quite literally on fire, but we also have to be the fire of change that we want to see. Uh, in two years um, of climate series at, at Mission Hills, uh, in the last three years, we've become a certified uh, green community in the Disciples of Christ. We've made drastic changes to our space and our operations. Uh, we sent supplies to protesters in Standing Rock. We participated in climate strikes, hosted climate events. We planted dozens of trees on site. We started a community garden, minimized our environmental impact, and moved to 100% renewable energy with solar panels on our, um, on our roof. And yet, simultaneously, we know that all of this, as the teacher of Ecclesiastes says, is honestly utterly meaningless in the grand scheme of climate change without a global shift in the economic and environmental practices of all of humanity. So yes, we have to be that change. We have to be the, the wildfire, um, and we have to continue to do that work. But we also know that this is a, we have to have a massive global shift in the way everything is practiced, basically. And I honestly get really depressed when researching uh, this topic every year because of the projections and the statistics. So if, if I sound a little bit despair <laughs> this morning, uh, it's because I kind of am. So I hope you'll have uh, some grace with me for that because uh, whenever you look at this stuff uh, semi-regularly, uh, it's, it's not super great. So, so uh, I, I want to be able to 
communicate that honestly while also saying that um, we urge all of us to not fall into a place of, of nihilism or throwing our hands up. It's not where we're going um, with this series and it's not where we're going as, as a community. And I had my first, honestly, I had my first dose of despair. I think I've told this story before, but when I was in college, uh, I did a presentation on how the U.S. need to be uh, at 100 percent electrical vehicles in 10 years. That was 11 years ago. That time has come and gone. And we're lucky if a car company gives you one electric option 11 years later. And really, the technology and the battery capacity that has been offered has barely changed in the last five years. So. Uh, yeah, I was really hoping and anticipating for a quicker shift to what, what is an industry that could make an easy shift. The technology was there. Um, the need was there. Uh, you could sell, you could sell electric vehicles, I think, and, and still turn, uh, actually turn more profit. So all that to say is I've kind of had a little bit of my first dose of despair when I was almost laughed out of the classroom for proposing that um, the U.S. needed to move to all electric vehicles by 2020. Was <laughs> That was, yeah, that's what I said, electric vehicles by 2020. Here we are in 2020. No one could have expected any of this. Um, so I, I have to find, for me personally, a kind of um, defiance and resiliency uh, of my own to, to keep pressing forward in this space. Um, because sometimes it really does seem like the, there's no purpose to our, our toil and our, and our work here. Uh, and sometimes it's just how it feels, you know, day to day and week to week. And we talked last year how we are beyond small and superficial changes. It, it might be good to take shorter showers. It might be good to turn off the lights, definitely drive less. Um, but that is not going to make the kinds of changes that we need in order to prevent global catastrophe and to prevent massive, like untold amounts of loss of life, our ecosystems, and, and human life. Basically, we have to have a Green New Deal uh, adopted, uh, like the Paris Climate Agree Agreement, by every country. And, and even still, um, parts of the earth are likely to be uninhabitable by the end of the century. So um, Greta Thunberg, you know, she says we can't, we can't, how does she say, we can't solve an emergency without treating it like an emergency. And so that's one of the things I think I'm trying to do here is to um, say that we have to, we have to understand how big of a problem it is in order for us to solve that big of a problem. There was an author uh, that wrote about Hurricane Katrina and how people came together. Her name is Rebecca Solnit. And she says, an, an emergency is a separation from the familiar, a sudden emergence into a new atmosphere, one that, that, we, that demands that we ourselves rise to the occasion. So I think what I'm trying to say this morning is um, whenever we're kind of thro thro thrown in, thrust into a, uh, a crisis or a situation where we see that things are... Um, potentially worse, or we're like, oh, wow, I forgot how bad this was. Sorry, I was checking my, uh, I was checking my garage band. Um, whenever we're thrust into something like this, uh, it demands that we ourselves rise to the occasion to be defined enough to solve really big problems. Uh, you know, there's, there's no saving the planet as we know it, 
but this isn't all doom and gloom either. We have to be a wildfire of change. Uh, Kate Marvel, she's a climate scientist at Columbia University. She says, we're not doomed unless we choose to be. We're not doomed unless we choose to be. Um, this is a major step in the process that's taking our Ecclesiastes meaningless, meaningless poem and coming out the other side defiant. Ourselves on fire with that kind of defiance. We are up against a system that prioritizes profit over people and as the people, as Christians, we have to be the fire that must burn down the system to the ground. So let's take a look at just some of the political and corporate capitalist forces that we're up against. In this next little part, I am taking and shortening from Naomi Klein's book, On Fire. And she writes, in 2008, Alaskan Senator Lisa Murkowski was so awestruck by the fossil fuel industry's seismic imaging that she proclaimed deep sea drilling to have reached the very height of controlled artificiality. Lisa Murkowski said this, it's better than Disneyland to take a resource that is thousands of years old and do it in an environmentally sound way, end quote. She told that to the Senate Energy Committee. Drilling without thinking has been the Republican Party policy since at least May 2008. When gas prices soared to unprecedented heights in 2008, conservative leader uh, Newt Gingrich <laughs> unveiled his slogan, drill here, drill now, pay less, with the emphasis on the now. And by the time the famous, the infamous drill baby drill in the Republican National Convention rolled out in 2008, the party base was such in a frenzy for U.S. extracted fossil fuels that they would have bored under the convention floor had someone brought a big enough drill. And unfortunately, Obama eventually gave in as well with a cosmic bad timing just three weeks before the Deepwater Horizon blew up. Obama announced that he would uh, open up previously protected parts of the country to offshore drilling. And Sarah Palin even later said, sneered at the Obama administration's plans to conduct more studies before drilling in some areas and said, she said, my goodness, folks, these areas have been studied to death. She told that to a Senate le leadership conference in New Orleans. Just 11 days before Deepwater Horizon, uh, the biggest uh, oil spill off the, the coast of the U.S. happened. And she said, drill, baby, drill, not stall, baby, stall, and everyone cheered. So those are just some of the uh, political forces that we're up against there. So in the last three and a half years, the New York Times has a, a running article. In the last three and a half years, the Trump administration and the Republican Party have already rolled back 68 environmental protection regulations and 32 more regulations are currently being dismantled. Obviously, another four more years of Trump and Republican climate policies would escalate the speed of climate devastation, contribute to warming, contribute to warming and intensify extreme weather events, um, fires, hurricanes, uh, but it would also lead to billions of dollars in damage and loss of human life. And I, I don't wanna be just sound like I'm just bashing uh, Republicans, even though they do have a complete disregard for life and our planet. But even Joe Biden last week emphatically said, uh, I'm not going to end frac fracking. I'm not going to ban fracking. Uh, so our simplest steps, like ending fossil fuel subsidies to save our planet and avoid economic catastrophe, it has to be taken on by people who have the most 
influence and power. And we have to hold those in power uh, in, in, to account, to put people in our planet over profits. That's, that's what this is really about. We have to hold elected officials to put people in our planet over profits. This, this strategy and in, in sort of um, theology of defiance towards, um, towards human life, it, it has to hold corporations responsible as well. Um, corporations are responsible for the majority of CO2 emissions globally. Just, just the top 20 companies contributed to 35% of all carbon dioxide and methane since 1965. So that's the top 20 companies, uh, all fossil fuel companies. They contributed to over a third of all CO2 and methane since 1965. Um, just 100 companies in the world are responsible for 71% of the global emissions since 1998. 100 companies responsible for 71%. Um, and that's why I think it's important to, in some ways, take it easy on, on just the average person trying to survive. It's really not our fault <laughs> that uh, that the the planet is warming at this rate. It really does come down to these companies and the governments that subsidize these companies and allow these companies to to drill with impunity or to you know to create plants, all that kind of stuff. In in just in our country, we have you know we have the emerging markets of Amazon and Walmart and and tech companies that are, are really taking over whole economic markets and are, are massive contributors to, to emissions. And, and we have a, a weird place in this because we are their, their customers and their employees and we're propping up their profits by the billions while eliminating uh, local businesses and smaller companies and their competition and leading to, to more devastation of our planet in, in the process. Naomi Klein also writes this. She writes, Responding to climate change requires that we break every rule in the free market playbook and do so with great urgency. We need to rebuild the public sphere, reverse privatizations, relocalize large parts of the economy, scale back overconsumption, bring long-term planning, heavily regulate and tax corporations, and maybe even nationalize some of them, cut military spending, recognize our debts uh, to the global south, and radically reduce the influence that corporations have over the political process. That means at a minimum publicly funded elections and stripping corporations as their, of their status as people under the law. The reason why this is a, primarily an issue taken at the powerful and the privileged, those in positions of power, those corporations, is because the crisis is created by the wealthiest in society. 50% of global emissions are produced by the richest 10% of the world's population. 50% of global emissions are produced by the world's richest 10% of the population. 20, the wealth is 20% are responsible for 70% of the emissions. So, so the wealthy have... Um, are, are producing the, the results of climate devastation. But the impacts of those emissions are, are hurting the poorest communities. You can see how this is a deeply Christian issue <laughs> as people who, who, have, uh, who, who are, are, are to be on the side 
of the poor and the oppressed and the lonely. Uh, the impacts of these emissions from these companies, from these countries, are, are hurting and will continue to hurt at a greater scale the poorest communities and countries. A, t a 2018 World Bank study estimates that by 2050, more than 140 million people in Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and Latin America will be displaced because of the climate crisis. That's just 30 year, in the next 30 years, we're talking about at least 140 million people. And some studies say that that figure is conservative. Uh, even the most optimistic forecasts that have just two degrees warming by the end of the century, the, IP, the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, says that we only have a 5% chance to hold those temperatures under two degrees warming by 2100. So uh, two degrees warming would still have devastating effects on the environment, but that would be zeroing out globally of emissions by, by at least 2050. Um, and, and then, and then uh, hopefully uh, rolling back from there. And you still will have two degrees warming and still have um, dire effects due to climate change with that two degrees warming, obviously. So we need to approach net zero emissions globally in the next three decades. Uh, but at this, it's, it's not even a, a path, like I said earlier, it's not even a path that we're close to um, as, as a civilization. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the concentration of CO2 in our atmosphere continues to go up. I think last year was around 400 uh, parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, humans have not ever lived with that much CO2 ever in the atmosphere. As of May of this year, that's gone up to 416 parts per million. So that number has to go to zero. Uh, and it continues to go up. So that number has to be at zero in the next uh, 30 years in order for us to have even the most optimistic chances of mitigating uh, some of the effects of global warming. It doesn't even stop it. It doesn't even roll it back. It just mitigates some of the effects. And that's only if in 30 years we get that number to go down and go down all the way to zero. So uh, last year, 2019, it was the second warmest year uh, in history based on NASA data. And it went up, it was 1.8 degrees warmer than the 20th century average. And five of the warmest years since 1880 have all happened since 2015. So um, it's, getting, it's getting hotter. 11% uh, 11, uh, 11 of emissions uh, are caused by deforestation. Uh, I read an article earlier this week that said, you know, we, we saw so much of the, the Amazon on fire last year. It's a really big deal. It, it, it created a lot of attention in the news. And it's currently burning 20% more than it was burning last year. Uh, so 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions caused by humans are due to deforestation. Um, that's equal to the amount of all emissions from vehicles on the planet. So think of all the vehicles on the planet and deforestation is, is just as much of, of a cause for greenhouse gas emissions. Emissions. Uh, tropical forests are are really effective at storing carbon, and they provide a third of the mitigation uh, needed to prevent 
uh, our worst climate change scenario. So when we think about uh, things that have to change or have to be preserved, uh, tropical forests are, are one of the main things that have to be preserved in order for our planet to, to capture and store carbon. Unfortunately, nature-based solutions only receive 3% of climate funding. So these sort of nature-based solutions aren't nearly as popular as, as some of the other things that are being uh, funded to, to help uh, the climate. So that is something that we have to, when we think of uh, an emergency and we have to think big, big solutions, uh, we have to preserve uh, tropical uh, forests. Uh, investing in preserving natural environments to fight climate change uh, improve the quality of life for every for globally for everyone, and it can be done because natural climate solutions, um, like restoring degraded forests, for instance, they create jobs. Um, so they create as many as thirty-nine jobs per million dollars spent. So that's um, that's a job creation rate that's six times higher than what the oil and gas industry does. So whenever we think about we have to completely restructure everything that happens <laughs> in our global economy, we have to think in the, in the way of uh, economics and, and job creation and, and to provide solutions and to prove that you can actually create, you can, you can sustain the natural environment, you can improve the quality of life for everybody, you can improve the air, you can improve the water, and you can give... Uh, good, clean jobs to people um, in areas that are doing good work, like preserving the environment. So everybody benefits in, in this kind of new system. Uh, and so that's an important um, way, I think, that we can help reframe what, um, what a green global economy can look like. Um, right now, there are 800 million people, or 11% of the world's population, that are vulnerable to climate change impacts, droughts, floods, heat waves, extreme weather, weather events, sea level rise, that kind of thing. But just uh, less than 1% of the world's forests are, are coastal mangroves. But coastal mangroves store 10 times as much carbon as, as tropical forests. So coastal mangroves are incredibly important to, to keep because they're already just 0.7% uh, of the world's forests, but they have uh, the, the carbon storing power uh, 10 times the amount as a uh, tropical forest. And unfortunately, we're losing 800,000 hectares of mangroves every year. If we continue to lose uh, mangroves at this rate, uh, they'll actually all be gone at the end of the century. So mangroves, they, they provide a, a really effective buffer against extreme weather for coastal communities. Um, and they release um, immense amounts of... Uh, uh, they capture so much carbon dioxide uh, from the atmosphere. So saving nature is, is cheaper than conser because conserving ecosystems is more cost-effective than man-made or human-made interventions. Uh, the Maldives preserving their natural coral reef, for instance, is four times cheaper than building a seawall for coastal protection. I'll say that again. In the Maldives, preserving their natural coral reef is four times cheaper than building a seawall even after 10 years of maintenance on the coral reef. So it's it, these uh, conserving these natural ecosystems are not only good for us and good for the ecosystems, obviously, but they're actually cheaper and more effective for everyone. Um, 
you know, we have to think in, in, in billions and, and trillions of dollars. Uh, it would only cost $140 billion per year starting this year to make the changes that we need as a global population to adapt to the level of warming, $140 billion a year. So that, that might sound like a lot of money, but it is just one-fifth of the U.S. military budget this year. Just one-fifth of the U.S. military budget. And that, that, would, that would go to solving um, the entire globe's uh, climate crisis year in and year out. So not only is it one-fifth of the U.S. military budget, but it's just 0.2%, uh, 0.2%, a quarter of a percent, uh, of the global GDP. So it's a very modest amount of money whenever, whenever it's uh, considered at scale for what we spend uh, as a civilization and everything else. Um, and unfortunately, this cost will, it will increase the longer we, we, we don't act because things will, will get worse and then it will cost more money, obviously. So our defiance has to rise to the level that reflects the planetary emergency. Um, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Yes, that is how a lot of this can feel. But when we honest, honestly consider the state of our planet, um, we, we remember that we can be the wildfire of change. Like I said, we've taken pretty drastic measures over the course of the last three years at Mission Hills, but we, we can't stop there. We need community transformation. We need neighborhood transformation. And that spreads to our city, hopefully. And that spreads to our state. And we have all of these groups starting wildfires of change that change our state, our city, our neighborhood, our nation, and our world. We have the agency and power for this kind of change. We have to come around to hold leaders and public figures responsible for what they say and do. Um, Joanna Macy writes, a moment of gratitude can strengthen your capacity to look at rather than take away from disturbing information. When you experience pain for something beyond your immediate self-interest, this reveals that you care, that you're compassionate, and you share connection with it. Honor your pain for the world, whatever form it takes. You take seriously this and allow that signal to rouse you. And so when I think about a theological case for defiance or resilience, we must demand and find an unexpected resilience within our own bodies and our own communities that can sustain and can sustain life and, and, and flourish. And like Joanna Macy says, like you, this, this sort of disturbing information reveals that we care, that we have compassion and some level of connection that this is stirring within us. And then it, then it just moves to, all right, what, what are we, all right, what are we going to do about it? Okay, I want to wrap this up because I know I am running a little bit long. Um, I think it was Walter Brueggemann that says, um, God is inviting us into a new kind of hope, which is a decision against despair. Hope is a decision against despair. So whenever we're talking about such heavy subjects uh, like this at Mission Hills, um, do not fall into despair. God is inviting all of us into a hope that is a decision against despair. 
We need big solutions to solve big problems, yes. Our economy of consumerism cannot continue the way it is. It has to be replaced by something that, that looks like what I would imagine Jesus would call the kingdom of God, an economy of sustainability, an economy of mutuality, in which there is interrelationship, interdependence of all things, of all life in our ecosystem. And everyone is considered. The lowly are taken care of. And this can begin with us as Christians. It has to begin with us, but it can't end there. We are the wildfire. We are the spark all over the world for this kind of change. For what I would imagine Jesus would say in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we started with meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But we're not going to end there. It might feel like that some days and some weeks, maybe even some years. 2020 has taught us that. Uh, But it doesn't end there. We are the wildfire. Okay, I will leave it there. Uh, I will put links in the show notes for... uh, websites and resources to utilize. Um, there, there are banks that allow you to um, plant your change, to divest your money from fossil fuels. You can even plant trees uh, with Ecosia, the internet search engine that allows you to, to search like you're Googling, but they plant trees as you make searches. So there are so many different resources out there that are, are helpful, that are useful, that I think as a community we can, we can just add on and, and find really hopeful ways to, to encourage each other during this time. So I hope to see you soon. This Wednesday we start our James Cone book study, The, the Cross and the Lynching Tree, on Zoom at 7 p.m. So uh, send us a direct message if you'd like to be a part of that. We'll send you the Zoom link. Other than that, be well and much love to everyone. Peace.